Welcome to the Film Comment Podcast. I'm Quentin Krupp. And I'm Devika Girish. We're the editors of Film Comment. This year marks the centenary of Amos Vogel, a programmer, writer, and educator, very dear to us. He was one of the founders of the New York Film Festival and an abiding influence on New York's film culture with his legendary Cinema 16 Film Society. In addition to his many contributions to the pages of Film Comment over the decades, Amos is also widely known for his classic book, Film as a Subversive Art, an encyclopedic analysis of underground, avant-garde, and otherwise uncategorizable cinema. The 58th New York Film Festival launched a celebration of Amos's legacy, which has since continued with tribute programs across repertory cinemas in the city, and a brand new edition of Film as a Subversive Art by Film Desk Books. At Film Comment, we're carrying this celebration on with our own week of Vogel mania. To kick things off, we invited a panel of Vogel experts, Richard Pena, the former director of programming at Film at Lincoln Center, Tom Weibel, curator of the Amos Vogel Library at the Austrian Film Museum, and Edo Choi, the assistant curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. Our conversation reckoned with Amos's ideals of cinema as a space for dialogue, communal contemplation, and political subversion. We hope you find the discussion as inspiring as we did. And make sure to subscribe to the Film Comment Letter to read this week's special edition dedicated to the extraordinary work and life of Amos Vogel. Welcome today to a very special, very exciting episode of the Film Comment podcast, a discussion of the life and work of Amos Vogel. We have an excellent selection of guests, including a cat that just walked by somebody's screen. But uh, maybe maybe that cat will get a, a feature later on in the episode. We'll have to see. But uh, we'll let them introduce themselves. Richard, do you want to start things off? Uh, sure. I'm Richard Pena. I'm a professor of film and media studies at Columbia University and also the director emeritus of the New York Film Festival. Great. Uh, honor to have you here. And Tom, do you want to introduce yourself? Yeah, I'm Tom Weibel. I am the custodian of the Amos Vogel Library here in the uh, Austrian Film Museum in Vienna, which contains about uh, 8,000 books, which was a private property of uh, Amos Vogel. Fascinating. A fascinating collection, no doubt. And Edo, do you want to introduce yourself a little bit? I'm Edo Choi, assistant curator of film at the Museum of the Moving Image. And we, we are one of the many venues in New York City that participated in the recent centennial tribute to uh, Amos Vogel. Flint and I went to one of the Momi Vogel programs in uh, Punishment Park and interviews with My Live veterans that was really quite quite stunning. So we'll we'll quite powerful. Yeah, yeah. We'll get into that. But Richard, we thought we'd start the discussion with you. I think one of the really interesting things about this year's centenary programming and just this uh, revisitation of Amos's life and work is to see and hear people from different generations and sort of different points in New York's film culture and global film culture really talk about their encounters with Amos and his legacy and, you know, how it has, it's just such a far-reaching influence. And I was curious if you could talk about your first encounter with Amos's work and, uh, you know, and then how did that sort of persist in your own work? You sort of, you know, took up his mantle at FLC. If you could talk a little bit about that. 
Sure. Um, I think I first met Amos sometime in the late 70s. I'm not entirely sure. I think it actually might have been at a New York Film Festival press screening where someone pointed him out to me. And I, I just went up and told him how much I admired him and whatever. And he's, you know, enormously friendly, warm guy and asked who I was. And I think we had a coffee and whatever. And then after that, uh, when I would go to New York, sometimes I would give him a call and we'd get together. And then after I became uh, director of the New York Film Festival in 1988, uh, he was just a wonderful, wonderful champion and just a constant source of advice. Uh, he would be very rigorous in going over each year's program and telling me, you know, what he thought, but always in the best, most supportive way. You know, I think that Amos, you know, answered in his writing and in his life, kind of a, a way that I thought about film, that there was something that was inherently subversive about cinema, that I think that idea that it sort of stood, you know, the contradiction at Lincoln Center was being at the center of cultural, you know, celebration at the same time with an art that in and of itself does have the subversive tendency of being more popular, of being reproducible, doing all kinds of different things. And I think Amos really helped me figure out a way through those shoals, you know, to really see how was it that we could continue a, a tradition of showing films that truly were uh, challenging to not only the status quo of filmmaking, but to society in general. And that's what I think he, certainly the legacy that he left me, the idea of programming as a kind of intervention in an overall cultural discussion. And I, I was reading an interview where you were sort of talking about when you when you joined film at, you know the film society and the New York Film Festival and there were certain things that you wanted to bring back one of them being mm -hmm. avant garde films you know mm -hmm. a robust yes. avant garde program I was wondering if you could talk a little bit about what you felt had waned since Amos had left and you know in the in the interim and when you came back what what were some of the things you wanted to maybe recoup or, or change? Well I mean some of it is you know so much waned as just with different personalities different kinds of tastes and interests are exhibited. Uh, Richard Roud who partnered with Amos Vogel and the directorship of the festival for the first five years uh, was somebody who just didn't have any interest in the avant-garde. I mean it just wasn't his cup of tea, one could say. Uh, occasionally, when there was someone on the committee like Jim Hoberman, he would, you know, try and work a couple of avant-garde films in maybe as shorts or something like that. But, you know, after uh, Amos left, there just wasn't a champion for it. And it was something that I missed because I, you know, myself very interested in avant-garde cinema. And so when I came back, I thought, what can we do to bring the avant-garde back into the New York Film Festival? And the, what we came up with was at first doing one program per year. I think we did this for about five years or so. That was avant-garde. It was, we called it avant-garde visions. And then eventually by the, you know, 90s, it kind of got big enough that, um, Gavin Smith and Mark McElhatton kind of offered to sort of take it over and try and make it into something bigger. So it became its own sort of mini festival within the festival and continues today. Um, get to the current name of the avant-garde program. I think it's, but it's Currents, actually. That's it, Currents. Yep. Uh, you know, and I'm just delighted that, you know, the New York Film Festival has once again become a home for avant-garde film, that people who go to the festival have an opportunity to see the work or to just know about it. 
And I think that's great. So I'm glad I planted that seed, but at best I was just recapitulating what Aunt Amos had already done back in the early 60s. It's interesting because he had such he was there for such a short, relatively short period too, but it was right. this uh, definitive period, I think, in some ways. Yeah, I think it was too. Tom, what was your first encounter with Amos and his work? I mean, what I know that you you're the curator or the uh, librarian of the of this collection of his books. Was that the first time you'd you'd really come into um, contact with his work, or had you been a long time reader? Yeah, I'm a long-time reader and uh, aficionado of uh, Amos Vogel because I started with a couple of friends. We started in the 80s uh, a film club here in Vienna and there was uh, already a vivid uh, scene of film clubs, but uh, we started one with a mobile uh, 35 millimeters, with mobile 60 millimeters, and later we we switched to to video so we had no uh we, we had no idea of purity in a sense that the austrian film museum at that time was upholding and and of course our kind of bible uh, was uh, the, the film as a subversive art and and we started one of the very first exhibitions uh, by uh, disputing uh, exactly the 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 idea of uh, taking film as a subversive art as a viable because I was uh, I was arguing that this is all wrong. It's it's completely misunderstanding taking film as a subversive art as kind of, of a holy bible of of film curatorship. Uh, and my central argument was if ever this is a kind of a book to rely on, it's a type of Talmud. It's no Bible. There is no canon in it, but there is only critics, comments, and uh, addendas uh, one can add and uh, gain from this book. So it is uh, like controversial and contradictory uh, as the Talmud uh, can be, that uh, there is an argument that God exists and the next film shows an argument that never was a, any possibility that uh, an, an entity could be in the universe more powerful than uh, human imagination, things like that. So I had a long acquaintance with uh, the text, idea, approachment uh, of uh, Amos Vogel towards films, towards uh, a subversive vision on film, and moreover, a subversive vision on, on cultural expression, because I really uh, got more into it, of course, when the, uh, his books came here uh, to Vienna. I I uh, must say, I never had the opportunity to, to learn himself personally. I, I, I never had an, any encounter, personal encounter with him. But then submerging here in these thousands and thousands of books, which are full of personal annotations, which are full of comments, which are full of critiques, of reproachments, of affirmations, uh, his personal style, which is a kind of interesting type of text because it's not directed to no one it's uh, the 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 lecturer is uh, um, kind of arguing with himself and the author so this is a very intimate situation where i uh, a lot of times got the feeling to to kind of getting in touch with what Amos thought, did, and uh, maybe aspired. 
And, and I was quite happy when one of these days, uh, Stephen Vogel came to visit us here in the Amos Vogel Library in Vienna. And uh, he himself, a philosopher, a, a scholar uh, with a great insight, he said, no, maybe there are sections, parts of uh, my father's thinking, which you are more uh, near than I could be as uh, his son. So there is a proximity, but this is kind of uh, um, not personal, but uh, through books, through comments and through um, now personal annotations, uh, juvenilia he took uh, with him in his, to his emigration. Um, so this is a late re-encounter with which uh, um, makes me think of what would have been so interesting and fascinating to have had once the chance to, to meet him in person. So I, I really envy you, Richard, a lot <laughs> that you had this long trajectory in uh, talking with him and, and being like uh, his peer in so many uh, of your uh, efforts. Yeah, Tom, actually, something you said is very interesting to me, and that is that idea of seeing those marginal notes, a few of which I saw over the years when I looked at those books when they were here in New York, and that idea of arguing with yourself, because uh, I think that that's really an important part of Amos's legacy for me. He was never somebody who said, here's my position, accept it or whatever. He was constantly revising. I mean, the number of times over the years he said, I didn't like that when I saw it, and now I, I, think, I, I think I was wrong. He was someone who argued with himself. I used to joke with him that it was the Talmudic side of Amos Vogel, which he would always kind of laugh at, you know, the idea of arguing with yourself while you're writing. And that I think was really part of it. And that to me was the wonderful openness with Amos, because it was never like, you know, here I am, you know, come agree with me or go away if you don't. It was always, let's get into dialogue. Let's talk about this. And that's why I think he was, you know, the ultimate sort of film club you know, programmer, because for him, it was all about dialogue. It was all about what these films excited in people so that they could react positively or negatively. Indeed, my first year at the New York Film Festival, I, I think I told him something about how we showed Derek Charman's Last of England, and uh, probably half the audience walked out. And when I told him that, you know, still a little bit nervous about my tenure, he said, but walking out is a perfectly legitimate response. And I'll, 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 that was something that really struck me. And he said it with all sincerity. He wasn't trying to make me feel better. It was just like, nothing wrong with walking out, you know? So anyway. I love this idea, the Talmudic, uh, the Talmudic thinking of film as a subversive art. It's, like, it's a beautiful idea. <laughs> I, I wanted to ask Tom a, a quick question before we move on. I, Tom, I'm curious if maybe briefly you could tell us a little about, you know, what place Amos holds in Austrian film culture. Uh, obviously he grew up there and I, I believe his love of film clubs and cinema started there, but he spent, you know, the large portion of his life in the US. And I'm curious how he is, you know, just remembered or memorialized um, or influential to Austrian cinephiles and programmers. I think on your website also you have a, uh, you have a breakdown of the, the books in his collection and something like a lot, only a small portion are, ger are German language, right? Or something like that. Yeah. Yeah, uh, this is a very important question. Well, it's a bundle of questions indeed. Uh, 
maybe first uh, the, the the relation uh, in in language. We have uh, some very crystal clear announcement of uh, Amos Vogel himself, and he said uh, the Nazis when they took over uh, Austria, they robbed him uh, his mother tongue. So uh, it was a constant uh, fight he uh, did during his lifetime to regain at least parts of his mother tongue and uh, diving into a special kind of text, mainly psychoanalytic text from Sigmund Freud, where he said, say, uh, thought that it's most important to, to read them in the original language but, uh, and, and, of course, literature. But uh, he he uh, scarcely wrote any letter in German. Of course, he had a, a, a lot of uh, correspondence with uh, European filmmakers, uh, film uh, curators uh, in Germany, in Austria, all over Europe. Uh, and, and some of his intimate friends were from Germany, where he frequently visited. But it's, it's, it's very rarely that you find, find more than one uh, uh, quote or, or one uh, short short uh, part in, in German, and often he, he, he kind of uh, says that, so now, uh, and now this is enough of German, Let, let's continue in, in, in English. Yeah. He was an avid reader, he learned, I think he learned his uh, particular elaborated and precise uh, uh, expression in the New York Times, he, uh, uh, there are... Uh, regards when he says that I, I try to read the New York Times any day in my life, which uh, um, is a big contradiction because as far as I know, the, the New York Times film review never uh, gave him any review of his Cinema 16 programs, but nevertheless, he, he, he uh, was uh, an avid reader of, of the papers. But uh, in regards of uh, the appreciation Amos Vogel uh, gained or, or has in Austria, this is a, a complicated and intriguing story. Nowadays, of course, we have him on the, on the highest uh, uh, level. We, we are happy here in the Austrian Film Museum to uh, celebrate his centenary. We started in April with his uh, 100th birthday and we are uh, accompanying the whole year with programs dedicated to him with an Amos Vogel atlas where we show Cinema 16 programs accompanied with uh, films he could have programmed later on. And uh, we had now in the Viennale Film Festival a big uh, uh, show with, uh, which was called the Amos Vogel Cosmos, which was an invitation to, to six uh, international curators uh, to come up with subversive films of uh, the contemporary to, to uh, uh, respond and correspond to the spirit of Hans Vogel. So we have him in the highest esteem. But this was not always uh, the thing, of course. Uh, we were, uh, at a certain time, um, Stephen Vogel approached me asking me if I could uh, detect when was the first moment that Amos Vogel came to Vienna. 
And we could establish, because of his comments and notes in, in a book of uh, The Twilight of Socialism, which is a, a, a study of the illegal Austrian socialists during the Austrofascist uh, regime, and uh, there is a note that the early illegal fascists were gathering in, in a certain hotel. And he writes a note, oh, I did not know that. I was in that hotel when I first got to Vienna in 76. So we know because of this note uh, in his book that it was at that early moment in time, in 76, that he came to Vienna, that he tried to visit also the the habitation, the, the flat where he lived in, where he grew up in Vienna, but this was uh, far from an official invitation. The first official invitation in terms of uh, acknowledgement of his film curatorship was in 92, when Alexander Horvath was uh, uh, in charge of the Viennale Film Festival and he invited him and, and Amos Vogel uh, commented uh, quite sarcastic or, or, or skeptic uh, remark on it. And he said, well, uh, I was uh, invited to the town hall. They gave me kind of a, um, a, a representational dinner and they, uh, they, it was a big uh, um, party there. Uh, there you can see how surrealistic uh, life can be. So he was not uh, like, uh, he was happy, of course, that he was recognized, but he was always uh, kind of alert that what is going on with the continuity of fascism, what is going on, are there young people who broke with uh, uh, certain traditions, who are in a new spirit and mood. So he was always skeptical towards uh, the his surrounding and uh, well as richard already pointed out at the same time very warm and very welcoming any uh, uh, any subversive or, or or independent articulation towards a, a better future yeah. he actually told me in 92 when he got that invitation how difficult it was for him to return and that, you know, while he appreciated it and, you know, knew Alexander had met Alexander and knew he was a wonderful guy and very serious, that just going back to Vienna was enormously hard for him. Uh, you know, and Amos wasn't a very emotional person, but I, I mean, the deep hurt that I think he experienced as a young man was something that never left him. So, I mean, he went, he was very well received. I remember when he came back, he said, oh, I couldn't believe it. You know, I mean, how nice they were and how many people knew of him. He was also amazed at that, that he had such a reputation. But that deep hurt of him having been expelled, I mean, he and his family and Austrian Jews, um, I think never left him. You know, I think it was always a real weight. And indeed, as you mentioned about language, I remember one time saying to him something about German and him saying, well, I pretty much suppressed my German. You know, and I said, really? I didn't even think it was possible because he left when he was like 16 or so. So it wasn't like he was a little child, but he really didn't, as far as I know, you would know better, speak German. I never saw him having a conversation with a German filmmaker in German. Every time he always spoke English and uh, it's odd. I mean, I didn't think one could do that, could suppress a language to such an extent. 
it seems uh watching interviews too that his uh he didn't have much of an accent either considering he immigrated at, at such a late age well, just a, a, a short remark on this. Uh, what uh, Richard is commenting that he was very like insecure in going to Vienna. When he uh, went back to New York City, he uh, he he wrote uh, an article in in a film comment, and and uh, the title is very telling. It is you have to survive even if it kills you. Very good. So this, uh, yeah, this this uh, paradoxical approach. I think this is uh, uh, something which uh, um, you can see in his writing and his thinking and and in in uh, his book, film as a subversive art, uh, but also in his uh, in in his well, I think I suppose in his personal approach. I, I had no personal approach, but uh, judging from the letters or, or, or reading from the letters, I think the nearly the only uh, German uh, curators um, he he uh, writes sometimes in German, and I think they were also speaking in German. Were uh, uh, the Patalas? He, he he calls them the Patalasses. Yes. <laughs> yeah. And they they frequently visited him and I I suppose they had some chats and talks in 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 German but uh, I'm I'm with you uh, Richard I I there is no public uh, document where he uh, speaks German not even in 92 when he came to, uh, as an invitation in, by invitation you're listening to the Film Comment Podcast. Sign up today for the Film Comment Letter. It's a free weekly digital newsletter featuring original film criticism and writing by Film Comment's editors and brilliant contributors. The letter delivers exclusive features, reviews, interviews, streaming picks, news, and more directly to subscribers' inboxes every Thursday before they're published on filmcomment.com the following Monday. Sign up today at filmcomment.com. Edo, we also wanted to know, you grew up in New York and you've, you know, been here a while. And uh, when did you or how did you first encounter Amos's legacy? And, you know, what impression did it have on you? I think my first encounter was fairly unremarkable. It was just seeing film as a subversive art in bookstores at the time that the second edition was still in print in the 90s. And I actually saw it quite frequently, so frequently, in fact, that I thought, well, I don't need to buy this now. I'll buy it. I'll buy it later. And then kind of quickly vanished from bookstores. And I never really had a copy. I had just kind of paged through it every time I would go to the bookstores. So my first memories of it and images from it and the impressions I had of certain films that I learned about through it is actually just these visits that I would take to, to the bookstores to look at the film sections. Um, particularly at the Barnes and Noble that was on, uh, I think, 86th Street. I just remember seeing Fomus' subversive art there every time I went, and then suddenly it was gone, and I had missed my shot to actually get my own copy. The deeper connection I ultimately had to Vogel and his work as a programmer came around when I went to college, and I became involved with my college's film society, Doc Films, uh, at the University of Chicago. DOC is a film society that was founded in the early 40s 
actually a few years before Cinema 16, but it's part of the same history as Cinema 16 in a lot of ways is kind of interacting with it. There are films that were at Cinema 16 that were at Doc and vice versa. And so I, I, I think that it was through getting to know the history of my film society that I started to become aware of Amos Vogel's legacy as a programmer. And that actually had, I think, a, a far larger impact on me than the book, because I'd sort of missed my opportunity with the book. I'd you know, learned about a few films from it, but pretty much didn't have a copy until uh, just a couple weeks ago, actually, when I got the third, the, the, the third edition, the new edition of it. So that's how I first received Amos Vogel. And when you were putting together uh, the, you know, series at Momi, which, as you were saying, is part of the citywide series of retrospectives, what in particular did you want to highlight, you know, and, and what did you think was important to revisit or showcase in 2021 from, you know, everything that Amos left behind? There's two parts to, to the background of how that program came together. I mean, one is very practical. There are films that Amos writes about that we really wanted to show that uh, are just very hard to acquire prints of um, within the United States. And under the time and budgetary constraints that we had, it would have been impossible to organize screenings of some of those those works. What were some of those like fantasy films? Um, partic- particularly uh, Viva la Muerte. I, I, I really wanted to show that film and uh, it was just impossible to, to get it under the circumstances. So I decided to restrict our focus to American American work and, or at least work made within America. And I thought it would be interesting to, to distill a particular historical moment out of uh, this wide range of films that he writes about that are organized thematically, not historically. And I, I but I thought that there was, there were, there were certain threads that emerged as as I went through the book, having to do with, uh, particularly in the case of this program, the American counterculture of the time and Amos's response to that and how excited or alternately skeptical he was of some of the films that were being made in the late 60s, early 70s that were being made from or kind of emerging out of radical movements. And uh, so I thought that would be an interesting direction to go. I thought it would be a a very kind of um, relevant place to take take the to take some of the films that are written about. So we focused on these films that were made in the early seventies, right around the time that Amos would have been writing the book and and finishing it. Films like Interviews with Mili Veterans and Saturday Morning, Kent, this Kent McKenzie documentary, and The Murder of Fred Hampton. And I thought it would be it would address more explicitly kind of the politics of uh, film as a subversive art and um, how important that was to his idea of what subversion means. That's actually something we wanted to talk about a little bit. As we mentioned, Steve Vogel and Loring Vogel wrote a, a really beautiful remembrance for us. And in the in their piece, they say... It's coming next week. It's not out yet. Yeah. It's not out yet, yes. And if you're hearing this probably next Tuesday, you won't be able to read it until Thursday, but this is just a teaser. 
So subscribe. Um, right. Our father's interest was first in politics and only afterwards in art, and his interest in art was always centered on its ability to, to, to transform. This is from Steve and Loring. And so I'm, I just wanted to talk a little bit about this idea, uh, how, how subversion in cinema was political for Amos and um, what his politics were in your, in your estimation and how they fit into kind of the uh, grand scheme of political makeups of the United States. Yeah, and political in a, in a really material sense, I think just reading the book, which I also got for the first time a few weeks ago, I mean, he's so specific in outlining the politics against which he is positioning himself. And I think maybe some of that does get lost when we're talking about the subversive-ness of cinema and Cinema 16. Uh, you know, he was he just names, you know, certain kinds of world orders and commercialization and capitalism and imperialism. There's a lot of problems with the emergence of liberal democracy around that time. And this, you know, this idea of there's the documentary that Paul Cronin made about film as a subversive art. There's this line, I think Scott McDonald says that for him, Cinema 16 was a means of inculcating good citizenship, a kind of public life or civic life. So, yeah, I mean, curious curious to talk about the politics from that angle well i think if i can jump in i think for amos i mean yeah i think his politics were those of you know left liberal new yorker you know in lots of ways i remember having a conversation with him one time asking me uh if i knew of any palestinian groups that were the best ones to donate to he really wants to make donations to them but he wants to make sure they went to the best groups so i I did my best to sort of fill him in on that. Uh, but I think beyond, you know, a specific cause like that, Amos was somebody who felt uh, against the idea of what you might think of as the kind of passive cinema. You know, I think for him, the horror was people go to the movies, they smile and they go home. You know, I, I think he wanted movies to be much more than that. He wanted movies to shake people up you know, to, I hate to say attack them, but, you know, disturb their world. That's what the subversive art is. And uh, in a way, that was, I think, something that really guided him. And over the years, that kept expanding. I think at first it was a lot of experimental cinema. Then, as Ada was just mentioning, documentaries like Murder Fred Hampton or interviews with Milai, uh, veterans, and then I think, I mean, as we went into the 90s, he was really interested in a lot of the conversations he had with me in a lot of films from nations whose cinema he didn't know. Uh, he became very interested in Korean film very early. I remember that. African cinema. And I think he felt that this is where the new subversion was coming from, more from these, verse, you know, these voices from around the world. And, uh, you know, again, he was very supportive when I was at the festival. And one could say the repertoire expanded a bit that, you know, he, he thought this was all to the good because this is really where people were doing, to his mind, new cinema, you know, saying things in new ways and whatever. So these are just some of the experiences I had with him. So again, I think it's, it starts off with that idea against the passive spectator. You know, one could say it was maybe his motto. Yeah, I completely agree. I'm sure that this is uh, the, the moving force, the driving force behind uh, a lot of this subversive uh, thinking. It's a shake up the audience to to steer them up, to, to uh, not let them be a passive uh, cultural consumerism, uh, but, but involve in an active manner, not only in the art of cinema, but in the art of life. 
to in, uh, in to to engage in what could be a better world and uh, in this aspect uh, um, well this um, may sound quite heretic to you as uh, film curators film directors and uh, programmers but uh, in 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 this aspect uh, film may have been a means and not an end for uh, Amos Vogel. A means for uh, uh, steer up the audience, for engage with, with a better, uh, uh, with a more uh, liberal, with a more social, with a more uh, acceptable world. He, he quotes, for example, that uh, um, he, he is, well, I, I, I will just read the quote. He says uh, when he is uh, in the 90s, when when an uh, oral history interview is done by the Lincoln Center, uh, he said, my interest in the world remained very constant. I have an, a very active interest in what the world is, what it could or should be. I'm very involved with social issues, have been all my life. And he adds, this comes more from books than from films. So if he chooses films to present, then it's because of the major impact films do have. It's of the, the, the broader emotional and affective uh, potential of films. If he would have found this in books, he would have uh, done public readings. I think he describes that early in the uh, early in film as a subversive art too. The the uh, you know the power of film, the unique power of cinema to kind of have this effective this effect on an audience and the primacy of the visual i think was very important to him i think even beyond that perhaps the primary primary primacy of the communal you know uh obviously i can't speak for amos but i think amos but he, i think he would have been horrified by the idea that increasingly we watch movies by ourselves that you know we watch them on our computer or whatever and uh he seemed to not like television very much no i, I don't because That's i think not... he called it garbage like, yeah. <laughs> but I, I just think cinema for him was you know quintessentially a communal experience that you get together i mean so that your reaction is part of that of a of a commune of a group that's why you know he gave me that comment about walking out as a perfectly legitimate response because again you can't walk out you know of your living room but you can walk out of a theater and you make a statement by doing that it's sort of you know making an intervention you know saying i you know this isn't worth my watching or something along those lines so i mean again i think you know amos writes for a time when we didn't question, you know, the communal nature of film viewing. Uh, obviously, it's not something that nowadays is a reality. Most of us watch most of our films not in theatrical settings. I shouldn't speak for all of you, but even I have to admit that nowadays. Yeah, I also think that his notion of what community is or how cinema can contribute to the formation of community would be very sensitive to today the way that um, not just that we watch films alone on our computers but the way that uh, streaming services uh, balkanize audiences and um, create uh, you know through kind of various like algorithmic sorting means like uh, a, a way of of uh, um, compartmentalizing um, cultures of reception. And I, I think that uh, 
he's very sensitive to this, even in film as a subversive art. He, I think he kind of almost sees this ha- coming and he sees the ways in which, especially Hollywood or, or um, at least the idea of a Hollywood, the idea of a commercial film industry subsumes and reifies things that might be subversive and makes them more consumable. Uh, that that uh, certain sensations, new sensations, sensations that could disrupt or jolt an audience or, or, or that could lead to uh, formations of, uh, uh, you know, kind of new communities uh, can very quickly uh, be commodified and presented as just uh, mere sensationalism. You mentioned mere sensationalism, kind of interested in talking a little bit about the difference maybe between, in, in your all's view, between mere sensationalism and subversion. I mean, he's he's so at odds with himself throughout the book, and it goes and as you've said, it's it's uh, Talmudic in its approach. So, how do we differentiate between, let's say, sensationalism and subversion? I was thinking sp- particularly about his uh, his interest in medical films, and just uh, which, in, on one level, you know, he's not showing them in order to teach anybody about medicine. He's showing them to to teach them about watching the human body or you know these things well i think some of that subversion comes not only from our interaction with films but films interaction with each other uh this is i think at the root of his dispute if we want to call it that with the sort of jonas mikas anthology crowd i mean i think he felt the idea of there being a kind of self-selected avant-garde you know, as much as he liked a lot of those works, he thought the danger is they're not interacting with other films. You know, we're not seeing brackage next to documentaries. Why, why not? You know, why aren't we seeing all these films in dialogue with each other? And if you look at the Cinema 16 programs, they were remarkable in that way, the way that he would bring together all kinds of disparate things, because you know, it's not like all of them had a uniform message, but they were in dialogue. I mean, that, that's really the word I keep going back to. He really liked the way that cinema could open up. And, you know, I think, as I said, in later years, you know, partially, I guess, with my own interest in a broad swath of international cinema, he was very encouraging about that because he felt this just added more voices. You know, uh, I remember talking for a film I was glad that Lincoln Center showed, um, as part of the tribute, the uh, Glaber Hosha film, Bahaventu. And he talks about how powerful that film was for him, you know, and especially at a moment when the civil rights movement was going on and things like that, to see suddenly this whole vision of a completely different Afro-based world in Brazil, you know? And so for him, it's not enough to appreciate just that film, although he appreciated it very much, but to put it in dialogue with other kinds of films that would be made going on at that time. And with the world. With the world, of course. But I mean, I think that that dialogue comes in or the world comes in through that dialogue. And this idea, I mean, this Eisensteinian idea of curation, I I mean, I thought that was really fascinating. This idea that you can put two films together and create something larger than their sum, you know, in the in the viewer's mind. I, I think that that also, though, comes from a particular context, generationally and historically, because the 40s in particular, um, even if you look at films that were produced as sort of wartime propaganda within like the British film industries or the United States film industries, which were made by commercial filmmakers and 
you know, putatively documentaries of in, in some way. They, they had some truth claims. It would be impossible to make films like that today uh, without answering a lot of questions around representation and how the truth was being disseminated to like mass audiences. And Vogel's programming, especially in the Cinema 16 time days, comes out of um, this era where there were less firm boundaries between what's a documentary and what's a educational film, what is a, a fiction or narrative film, what's avant-garde, and what kind of grammatical or syntactical cues divide these, these things from one another. And I, I think that he made that self-conscious, but it, it actually is coming from generationally a time when I, I think that there were just less, uh, there were, there were, there was a less um, orthodox view of separating these these types of film uh, on gener along generic lines from from one another. Um, even and this is sort of how I related Cinema Sixteen to Doc. Even at Doc, which was founded as a documentary film uh, uh, society, which is hence the name. What they were considering documentaries in the '30s and '40s are things that we would not call documentaries today. They, they thought of Battleship Potemkin and Strike as documentary films. Uh, and uh, just as those films and the, actually the montage films uh, that, that were produced by the Soviet filmmakers in the 20s influenced, for instance, the GPO film unit and in the UK um, in, in terms of their approach or method to making documentaries. Um, so I think that that kind of ecumenicalism or heterodoxy, stylistically, formally, uh, is something that, you know, I think he just carried with him. I think actually going to Edo's point, it's interesting if we look to, I think it's 19, either 59 or 60, in film culture, there's the manifesto of the new American cinema. And look at who signs it. John Cassavetes, Richard Leacock, Stan Brackage. I mean, all of these people see themselves as part of something called the new American cinema. Their cinema doesn't look alike at all, but, or, you know, whatever. But there's a way in which uh, they were willing to see themselves together as an alternative to, you know, I guess what we would consider commercial American cinema. I, I would uh, like to come back to this uh, question of uh, what is spectacular and what is subversive um, and combine the question with, with the forming of an audience. Because uh, as, as Richard pointed out, of course, for, for Amos Vogel, cinema was undoubtedly uh, a, a collective uh, form of seeing films. It was not so much to see uh, an artwork, but... Uh, engage in an active way of seeing, like seeing films as a way of thinking, and uh, to to uh, um, enable these ways of thinking, he f tried and he uh, manifests this in in his Cinema Sixteen programs that uh, he 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 likes to be able to form an audience, to create an audience, but and this is a very paradox. This audience is not equivalent to a community because his programming is not algorithmic like so if you uh, the style that if you like these films you will like this and that and the other two and you have a whole program and you feel comfortable by seeing it no his kind of uh, uh, subversion is always 
programming what opposes, what contradicts, what disturbs, what disrupts. So this can maybe never be um, simulated by an algorithm. But at the same time, it's a means for him to create audience and not to create social disruption. So this is, uh, uh, I think, the, this is the line where we have to, to, to search the difference between what is spectacular and what is subversive. It would have been spectacular at a certain time in the 40s in New York to show a full program of avant-garde films. But it is subversive to combine the avant-garde films with documentary film, with medical film, with uh, Nazi propaganda film, and to let them collide. So to awaken an audience and, and, and to, to envision a possibility of seeing films as a way of thinking, as a way of engaging with film, with the world. I, I think awakening an audience is right. And I do think that that's what separates a movie that is maybe merely shocking you for Vogel from a movie that is actually delivering, using a shock perhaps, to not elevate, because I think that that would in a way be actually his, where he parts company with Mikas um, and with um, the new American cinema, um, but to open up or induce a change in consciousness at least. And I think that that uh, is, you, there are examples in film as a subversive art of films that he's writing about that uh, he sees as kind of part of the larger history of subversion within cinema, but that he does act, that's not actually find to be a productive form of subversion, or he thinks are contributing to um, the commercial, uh, uh, the co-optation of subversive uh, means towards uh, more, um, uh, you know, conforming ends, at least. I think, and, and, and Clockwork Orange would be an example of this, uh, where he really feels that at a certain point, the nudity and violence that Kubrick builds into the film are just there for shock value without a clear enough ideological program or intent. Yeah, yeah. We could add to your uh, example the, the, the strange approach Amos Vogel had to Pasolini's 120 Days uh, of uh, um, Sodom, um, because uh, he, there is nearly the same uh, uh, problematics. He says that the, the explicity of nudity collides and confronts the Put the subversive potential, and he's not sure which uh, which part uh, will gain in the film. So he is quite um, not not uh, coming to a, to a clear cut decision. This is the interplay of uh, spectacularity and and subversion. Yeah, I think that perhaps shock is something that affects you and then goes away. I mean, because you're no longer, whereas subversion is something that changes the way you see the world. You know, that's why I think, you know, it was important for him so that it's something that stays with you when you leave the cinema, as opposed to shock, which, you know, you see a terrible scene of violence or whatever, or a graphic scene of sex and it shocks you, but then that's over, you know, whereas subversion is, should be something more long lasting. 
Yes, and it should be something which haunts you as an idea that uh, the, as, as he finalizes the film of subversive art in saying that it's always the upcoming of new subversions. A subversion fulfilled has to be uh, subverted. As soon as the subversive film is finished, it, it already needs to be subverted. Right? <laughs> yeah, and this, I mean, this constant idea of struggle, I was so struck by the last chapter, The Eternal Subversion, where he... He closes it out by talking, you know, quoting Marx and sort of talking about the, I guess, the point of life being struggle, just that word. And so this idea of this like ongoing, uh, I don't know, dialectical engagement with the world seemed outside of history, very striking. Yeah. yeah. Which is, and he explicitly points that out. Like, why did Marx not like historicize that word in this particular instance, which I thought was really striking? Well, I... I kind of wanted to dig a little more into this idea of subversion because obviously subversion is a historical idea too. So, you know, this is, he's programming like at a time in the US when there's a lot of censorship and the Hayes Code and all of this. So what he maybe regards as, as subversive is obviously responding to, you know, certain forms of oppression. And one example that I thought was really striking was, you know, him showing the the Nazi film, The Eternal Jew, yes. and, you know, just sort of insisting on showing it and having Siegfried Krakauer write the essay. I, I mean, I didn't know this, and I I just, I just so, such a kind of, you have to admire how inspired the whole thing is. And I'm kind of curious, you know, how we think of subversion today, thinking of these examples that he was um, putting forth then, you know, what really are the forces that need to be subverted today in curation, like through curation or through cinema? And what hmm. would a similar approach be in the present day? Well, one of the differences, of course, is that, you know, in Amos's programming, say in the late 40s through the 50s or whatever, you know, the average viewer had no access to any of these films except through Amos Vogel. So in a way, he was programmer and arbiter. Whereas, of course, now that's simply not the case. I mean, all of us can get online and see an unbelievable assortment of things. So in that way, it kind of changes the dynamic quite a bit. Um, you know, if you don't like something, you just move on to something else, you know, which again was not the possibility, I think, in the late 50s. Uh, you know, now when we speak of subversion and things like that, uh, again, I think it goes back to, I mean, I've sort of been working on this for something I've been trying to write, you know, that I think increasingly we are going back to seeing the personal as subversive, that in a way, in an increasingly corporatized, you know, culture, that the idea of just sort of wanting to do your own, you know, itself becomes, I think, the subversive because you're not supposed to, you know, you're supposed to, you know, get something that everybody can enjoy or everybody can see or fit into an algorithm. Whereas, you know, increasingly I find, and, you know, at the same time, we have the means to do that. You know, we have the means to use our own phones or whatever to make films. So something along those lines, I'd say, is where subversion stacks up today. Uh, because the truth of it is almost anything that, say, Amos would show, you know, if you showed fireworks, you know, obviously that would be a, you know, way subversive, you know, from late 40s, early 50s. But nowadays there's a catalog of gay work, you know. And so I'm 
those kinds of, I think, distinctions in terms of subversion don't necessarily, um, how could you say, cut it anymore. Now I think it is really more, a, you know, a debate about the space of the personal vision versus that of the corporate vision. Yeah, I don't think that the uh, Eternals is going to be considered a uh, work of subversive art anytime soon. I think we can all agree. I, if if the personal is the next frontier of subversion, I think that that's a bit of a bind or a cul-de-sac for, uh, for, for uh, any kind of incipient revolutionary movement happening over cinema, because it, 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 it means that we're all kind of uh, trapped in our own limited experiences and expressing those experiences. So I think that that, I, I, I don't want to presume, but I think Vogel might find that to be very limiting or at least a, um, a, a little bit of a, a, a trap for consciousness or something like that. It kind of begs the question of whether or not cinema can still be considered a communal, a communally experienced art form then. Well, the personal can be experienced communally though, you know, I mean. Of course. Well, sure, sure. But I think that this idea of cinema being a tool to uh, transform consciousness it may or may not be it might it might might not be the tool that is currently transforming consciousness the most yeah, maybe you're right but uh, we sh we should not forget that we nowadays uh, have the obligation to differentiate between cinema and film which actually Amos Vogel had not to do because film, as Richard also uh, pointed out, was cinema. There was no other possibility to see film. Uh, Vogel discarded, discharged uh, the television completely for two reasons, of course. It, the limited possibility to create audience it still has the possibility to create an audience, of course. The, the, the stronger point was that cinema has to be bigger than life. It has to be bigger. The image has to be bigger. The, in, and he argues that it's very important that your relation to the image uh, has to be also reflected in terms of, of size. If you are always watching on your handheld device uh, min minute uh, images, your relation uh, as, as, as a consumer author is quite different than if you are submerged in an image which is uh, many times bigger. So we have a complete changed uh, situation uh, in which we um, encounter film and in which we encounter visual experience, in which we encounter also filmic narration or visual narration. In that terms, maybe that could combine the idea of Richard and the skepticism of Edu. Um, it, it seems possible to me that uh, uh, today, up to date, Amos Vogel would come up with an idea of subversion, which um, um, is quite close to Melville's idea of partly be to saying to, to a certain disengagement. I prefer mm -hmm. not to to disengage with the mainstream, to disengage with the possibilities of streaming platforms, to disengage with the multiplicity of images shown as a community. This could be a form of, of, of very important uh, subversion uh, for our days, for our contemporary. I think that's a very good point, Tom. And maybe a good note to end on. <laughs> Okay. Yeah, we prefer not to. 
Yeah. <laughs> we'll end on that. Thank you guys so much for coming. It was a great discussion. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's fun thank to you. be a student, your students for this hour. So thank <laughs> you. <laughs> and hope to have you all back again soon. Take care, everybody. The Film Comment Podcast features original music by Greg Einge. Film Comment is a publication of film at Lincoln Center. Since 1962, Film Comment has been the home of independent film journalism, publishing in-depth interviews, critical analysis, and feature coverage of mainstream, arthouse, and avant-garde filmmaking from around the world. Visit us online at filmcomment.com.